Uh, we have two readings this morning. The first is from Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the second reading is from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Ken. No, I don't need that one. Uh, welcome, everybody. Sorry for the slowness in our service. I think uh, Isaac said at the beginning, but we were having some technical difficulties that you can witness with your eyes. I don't know if you thought that it was supposed to be that way. If you did, thank you. You must be over the age of 50. Um, <laughs> oh, that, oh, that was too much. <laughs> okay, boomer. Um, so I have said this a few different times. I have said this a few different times. That I believe that an important part of my job is just to insult everyone right at the beginning of the sermon so that you trust me. I don't know what I'm actually intending to do with that. Um, but thank you for being patient. Thank you for being with us. Um, right now, let us pray one more time, and then we will roll into the text in today's sermon. God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you are present to us, that no matter how strange the day begins, no matter how many technical issues there are, the reality is that you are good. And this moment is just a small place for us to remember that you are good despite what happens around us, that you are good in the midst of it, that you are good in the wild and the unknown and the strange, and that you are with us. So Jesus, today, as we talk about that, as we, as we meditate on that, would you help us to see how good you are? And would you help us to understand what it looks like to abide in your goodness? Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So I, I don't know if you were like me when you were a kid, but when I was young, 
I really was obsessed with like different eras of human history. Like I always wanted to be a part of a different era of human history. And one of the eras of human history that I was most obsessed with, I went through a long stage of really obsessing for some reason about like 19th century explorers. Not like earlier explorers, like I wanted these like late explorers. And specifically, I was obsessed with like polar expeditions, trips to the Arctic. And so I would think often, instead of doing math, what would it be like to travel to the polar north? What would you need? What would you need to survive there? What would you bring? How would you endure that kind of trip? And I always felt like, okay, there's a few different questions you have to answer. If you're going to travel to the North Pole, there's a few different things you have to know. One, you just have to know where you were going, which was always a problem for 11-year-old me. I didn't know how to get there. But you also needed to understand, like, the conditions of the polar north. Like, not only did you know how to get there, but you needed to understand what the environment would be like. What was the landscape going to be like? How would you navigate the ice sheets and survive the cold? So you needed to understand the destination, but also the conditions of the destination. You would need to know what to bring. What kind of clothing to bring, what kind of technology to bring, what kind of utensils and tools to bring with you to navigate, and you would need to know who you were going with. That always felt like the most important question to me. Just me and my buds. Now, the way that we travel to the North Pole, it really changed in the 19th century with these early polar expeditions. And specifically, it changes dramatically after 1845 with what is referred to as the Franklin Expedition. Now, I, I need to encourage you right now, do not Google Franklin Expedition and then click images. It is horrific. Because the Franklin Expedition is a group of British sailors led by Sir John Franklin, who was a captain of the British Navy. And he set out from Britain with 138 sailors to go explore the Northwest Passage and to make it to the North Pole. And they leave England to just massive fanfare. There's so much like dignity and honor and like celebration that you kind of like think about with like 19th century explorers, all of these men in like sailor uniforms saluting. It was this big moment of national pride and celebration. And they set out in these massive boats, these three-mast steam-powered ships to go to the north. The problem for the Franklin expedition is that no one had been that far into the polar north. So they had no idea how to prepare for what they were about to experience. There was no solid charts or maps to help them navigate the polar north. The best that they had were incomplete. And the kind of environment and topography that they were going to face when they got there was basically unknown to them. And so because of that, this like group of dignified sailors, they set out and find themselves totally unprepared for what they found. But even beyond being unprepared for what they found, the more that you learn about the expedition, the more you realize that they were interested in the strangest things. They leave England with these two steam-powered ships, but they only bring 12 days of coal. Now, you can sail, right? So you sail to the polar north, but you need coal to break up ice sheets. Oh, and keep the boats warm. 12 days. It was supposed to be a three-year expedition. They knew that. 
What they did bring, though, is that both boats had 1,200 volume libraries. So 12 days of coal, 1,200 volume libraries. Each boat came with China place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware engraved with officers' initials. Not only were their boats totally unprepared and were they preoccupied with the strangest things, they also didn't think much about the technology they would need when they got there. And so when they finally make it to the polar north, they find out that their clothing is totally unsuited for this environment because they are just wearing standard issue British naval jackets. They considered it undignified for some reason to travel by dog sled, so they did not bring any. So there was no way for them to like actually navigate the ice sheets when they got there. And so because of this, because of how unprepared they are, everyone on the Franklin expedition dies. Spoiler. Every single one of them dies. And then for the next 20 years, other expeditions start going out trying to rescue them or trying to find them. And for 20 years, other explorers start to find the remains of the Franklin expedition. And the fascinating thing about what they find is that they would like find individual groups of sailors isolated from one another, and they could like kind of piece together that they were a part of the Franklin expedition. And so they find one group who was walking probably to find help, and they're like, well, what did they bring with them? What did they decide was important? And they find that the sailors are carrying massive amounts of silver flatware. They find another group that's like frozen on a, in like a tiny dinghy on like a shore, and on the boat, they're like, well, maybe they had some more supplies. On the boat is like chocolate, tea, very British, silver flatware. <laughs> what are you thinking in your head? Like, we're going to have a nice dinner. <laughs> For 20 years, they would find these remains of these explorers totally unprepared for the conditions in which they find themselves unprepared for the conditions and preoccupied by the strangest things. Like when we think about this journey now, it feels almost to me that you have a group of explorers who enter into a dangerous place, but they treat it like they are tourists. Totally unprepared for what they're going to find. Now, why are we telling that story this morning? No reason, just that was interesting. Now, the reason that I told you that story is, one, I just love how human it is. It feels like the most human story possible, like a bunch of brave people are going to go off into the Arctic North and survive somehow. But even more so, we are in this series called Practicing the Way, and we're exploring the practices of being followers of Jesus, practices of keeping in step with the Spirit. And we've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit. These are fruit and they are practices that cultivate in us a certain kind of life. And today we have made it to the practice or fruit of faithfulness. And the reason I told you this story is that I think we approach faith and faithfulness the same way the Franklin Expedition approached their own journey. Meaning we do not know where we are going. We are ill-equipped for the voyage that we are on, and we are preoccupied by the strangest things. 
We, like the Franklin Explorers, are tourists who do not realize that we have been sent by God into the tumultuous waters of everyday life. We do not realize that God has called us into strange and unexpected and wild places. And so instead, we tend to treat our faith in this thing that we're doing with God like uninterested observers or tourists on some kind of like Alaskan cruise line. When the truth is God has called us according to his word into strange, unknown, unexpected, and sometimes even dangerous places. This is often how the Bible talks about faith and faithfulness. In almost expeditious language. One of the most famous passages on faith comes in Hebrews chapter 11. And if you just look at the language, it's full of this idea. Like in verse 8, and nine, it tells the story of Abraham. And it says this, by faith, Abraham when obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. And if that is not enough to kind of give us the idea that faith is a calling into something unexpected, it just goes on to say, by faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. It even ends this way. Time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and on and on. The language of faith in Hebrews 11, it revolves around this idea of God calling people into unknown, strange, or unexpected places. It revolves around this idea of being called into the strange, into the real of life. That's actually how the passage of Hebrews 11 begins. In case we don't understand what the writer of Hebrews 11 is trying to do, the writer begins saying, this is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And then illustrates it in all of these stories of people who are called by God into something. Like if you want to understand what faith is, here is this picture. It is the stuff of hope. It is the practice of trusting God and going with him somewhere. It is the practice of holding on, of abiding in him and going where he leads. That's how the Bible describes faith. The problem is that I don't think that's how we understand faith or faithfulness. One of my favorite authors is a woman named Annie Dillard. And when describing people in the church, she says this, which I think is funny and totally biting. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Not aware of conditions. I think one of the easiest ways to understand this or to think about this is just looking at our own selves and our own religion. 
As I was thinking about what we tend to do with faithfulness and how we tend to define faithfulness, I think we tend to make faithfulness about moralism, right? About doing the right thing. Now, at one level, that is true and beautiful. Like we do do the right thing. We believe that God's way is right. But I feel like what often happens is that God's way gets subtracted from God's work and God's world. We ignore the condition. God's work and God's world, what is actually happening around us, what love looks like when it is extended through us and into the real world. So we subtract, subtract those things, ignore the conditions, and God's way becomes an end in and of itself. Which I think for many of us begins to feel a bit empty. Like We wonder, why do we do the things that we are supposed to do? Why are we supposed to be faithful? If it feels like an end in and of itself. But the thing is, in Scripture, faithfulness is not simply the right way of living, though it is the right way of living. It is the way that we navigate the uncharted waters of our lives. Like jackets in the polar north, faithfulness is about surviving and thriving where God has called us and led us. So the writer of Hebrews says, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, often we take this passage and we actually make it moralistic. We say that faithfulness is doing the right thing to please God because somehow God needs that. But that is not what the passage says. It says that faith is necessary for us. That we are the ones who are so desperately in need of faithfulness that we believe that he exists. We believe that he rewards. And that reframes our own existence and our own life. Annie Dillard also said this about this moment. She says, like, God needs nothing. Like the stars. But it is a life with God which demands these things. You do not have to sit outside in the dark. However, if you want to look at the stars, you will find the darkness is necessary. See, faithfulness is about what we need in order to live in light of what God is doing. It is what we need in order to trust God and follow him where he is leading us. And the story of our Faith is of a living creator God who has rescued us, called him into the unknown. And so faithfulness is us receiving his rescue and going with him by him. It's how we navigate the tumultuous moments of our life. It is how we hold fast to him despite the things around us. See, without those conditions, like the reality of our life, faithfulness seems empty. But as we understand the conditions, we start to understand what faithfulness is. So we need to understand the conditions of our own life to understand why we need faithfulness. I think the other thing, though, that we tend to do with faithfulness is that we almost like make it about too many things. I think like the Franklin Expedition, we try to bring too many pointless things with us on this journey. Silver plateware, wine goblets, massive libraries, wealth, security, comfort, pride. 
And so to all of those things that we try to load into our conception of faithfulness, Jesus says simply that we need to abide. Jesus in John 15, 4 says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can you unless you abide in me. Faithfulness has conditions, meaning we pay attention to the world around us, which makes faithfulness necessary. And then when we're actually being faithful, faithfulness is first about abiding in God, remaining in him. It's about recognizing the conditions of our life and holding fast to him, recognizing that we are in uncharted waters, strange places that God has led us somewhere weird. And if we want to survive those moments, then we have to hold fast to him. That if we want to be able to navigate the unknown or make sense of our situation, we have to hold fast. This is hard though for us because we are not sensible of our conditions. We often do not see the severity of our own conditions. We are convinced that we can handle them on our own. To say it differently, you could say we are not dependent. Or at least we do not conceive of ourselves as dependent. Like the Franklin Expedition, I think we bring a lot of good things into this relationship with God. but none of it is actually helpful in the real of our lives. I think this is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's the same idea as what we just read in John 15, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I think it would be the easiest and most practical place to see this is when we think about prayer. We actually began this series in Heather's first practice with prayer. And I think of just my own life, as I think of my own kind of conception of prayer, I don't pray much. And I think that's because I do not see myself as dependent. I do not see myself as dependent upon God or upon others or even like that those people or God are all that necessary to me. My life is pretty comfortable for the most part. I'm pretty smart for the most part. And so I feel insulated from the conditions. One of my favorite theologians has this really helpful quote. He says this. He says, this is a problem of our entire social order, a social order that is bent on producing wealth as an end in itself, cannot avoid producing people whose souls are superficial. He can't help it. We're so insulated and so comfortable and so protected from so much of our own true dependence that we become superficial. Such a people cannot imagine what kind of people would write and sing the Psalms. Learning to pray requires that I learn to acknowledge that I am dependent. See, prayer only makes sense as we understand our conditions, our dependence. 
So I love that moment where he says that learning to pray, that the Psalms are prayed by people that we don't understand. Because the Psalms rarely are, rarely is the moment in the Psalms God actually changing the circumstances. Now it happens, but most of the time it is God's people bringing all that they are to this moment, recognizing there is no other option for them. As they're trying to wrestle through the reality of their own circumstances, they're asking God to be with them. They are trying to abide in God regardless of whether or not the circumstances changes. The Psalms are about being with God in the wild, not the wild changing. Which is hard for us to understand when we do not recognize our own dependence. See, abiding or faithfulness, it is the recognition of dependence. And it is the practice of losing all the junk that we tend to bring to God, our smarts or our wealth, our pride, our self-assurance. Because we recognize that those things do not help us in the real. They are like silver platters in the frozen north. They'll actually probably kill us. We need something more than that. So faithfulness begins as we are practicing abiding in Jesus, holding fast to him and letting go of so much of the junk that we have been preoccupied with. But it does not stop there. Faithfulness is also about abiding with people. It's abiding in God and it is abiding with people. And Jesus is just a few moments later when Jesus is praying In John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they, my people, they are in the world. I am coming to you. Therefore, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As explorers found the remains of the Franklin expedition, they found sailors just like scattered all over the frozen north. But subsequent trips that actually made it all the way to the North Pole did so in teams. And specifically, in teams that were led by Inuit guides. People who knew the landscape. Knew the tools. Even sometimes the tools seemed less sophisticated. They were better adapted to the environments. They knew the means of crossing the ice. Because no one makes it to the polar north alone. Similarly, faith can never be solitary. But I think like the Franklin Expedition, I think we actually want it to be at least I do, if I'm honest with myself, I think I want faith to be solitary because I want to plant my flag at the end of it all and say, I did it. I want to be in control and I want the honor or the glory or whatever it is that comes with having completed the thing and planting my flag at the end of it. But again, that is a failure to recognize conditions. We are not tourists, and this is not a game. We are desperately in need of one another. Not just for maturity, though that's true, but I think Scripture would say for survival. 
that God has led us into wild places as exiles and strangers. And the church needs one another to survive those environments and that landscape that we are desperately connected to one another. Again, not just because it's nice, not just because it's fashionable, not because it's better to have friends, but because if we do not be connected to one another, we will not survive what it looks like. This is what Jesus goes on to say in John 17. He says, I've given them your word, but the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I don't ask you to change the circumstances around them. I don't ask you to change the wild. That's not going to happen. But I ask them that you keep them from the evil. So the conditions are that we are strangers and exiles, that God has called us into the very real work of this life. And the issue may not even be, I'm not trying to make an argument that you're going to be persecuted. More than anything else, I think even just the contrast between God's way and the world's way will never make sense in our lives if we are not deeply connected to others. We need to be faithfully connected to one another because we need one another. See, when we begin to recognize the conditions, I think not only does it help us understand why we're connected to one another, but it changes the way that we think about faithful community. We are Christians in the real work of real life. We may not like one another, but we need one another. And I may have issues that need to be dealt with, But I feel like if we're trying to survive something together, the way you deal with my issues is different than if we're comfortable and in luxury. You're dealing with my issues in a way that you are, regardless of whether you like it or not, connected to me. So you don't, get to like, you don't just get to like reject me or judge me or push me away. You actually have to stay with me as I'm figuring out what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to heal and to overcome and to grow. Right, if the conditions are what Hebrews 11 says, we don't get to reject each other just because our preferences aren't there or because somebody's in sin or because we don't want to have the hard conversations. We are always connected. We need each other for the sake of survival. If we can recognize the conditions. Let me see if this is true, like if this is what faithfulness could look like, what do you think it would look like for us as a community if we began to practice that kind of faithfulness? What would it look like if we believed the conditions of Hebrews 11? If we believed that we needed to abide? I think on one hand, we would be a people who are joyfully trying to discard the unhelpful parts of our lives. I think we'd be a community that is practicing the hard work of faithfulness to each other, of remaining over the long haul with one another. And most importantly, we would witness. We would witness to the reality of Jesus' story. 
because we would no longer be acting like disinterested tourists, but people who actually believe what they say they believe. So, Mr. as we close up, we'll come to the table in a moment and we'll practice these things, but I just want to ask you a few questions based upon this. And first, where do you need faithfulness? Right? If faithfulness makes sense in light of the conditions of our lives, in light of the conditions of being a follower of God, in light of the conditions of being in strange, hard, even mundane places, where do you need faithfulness? And maybe it's not even about the heart. Maybe that's not the right way to conceptualize it. Maybe it's like that quote from Annie Dillard about seeing the stars. Where do you need faithfulness to see the beauty of God? Where do you need to see the conditions of your life? Maybe as you think about that, it's helpful to even think about, like, well, what in my life stops me from seeing those conditions? Is it that I believe in my own smarts, that I believe I'm capable? Is it my wealth? Is it the way I do religion? What is it that stops me from seeing the conditions? That stops me from seeing the reality of God's work and God's way? And as you begin to see those conditions, then what could it mean to abide in God there? And finally, and maybe this is the most practical of these questions, who do you need to remain with? Who do you need to remain with? We abide with God and there's faithfulness to one another. So who do you need to remain with? Not simply for growth or more or multiplication, though those are all fine values, but for the sake of remaining with. Maybe it's depth and time over more. Who do you need to remain with? Missy, would you take a second to just begin to pray and meditate on these questions? And then as you come to the table, like we do every single week, would you come out of the conditions of your life? Recognizing that the table is not an empty religious gesture, it is actually something we need. It is actually something that is for us, like faithfulness is for us. The table is something we need. So would you meditate on the conditions, and out of those conditions, would you come to the table? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us this morning. And that wherever we are, wherever we're called, wherever we feel like you've led us, wherever we feel like we've just ended up, that you are with us. God, you open our eyes to that pay attention to where it is that you've led us or the way that you're with us so we could see the true conditions of our lives and know what it means to be faithful. Know what it means to abide in you and be faithful to others. God, help us to see it and know it and experience you in it. In your name we pray. Amen.
Let me say when you're ready, we invite you to the table. Bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. And if you'd like someone to pray with, there would be people over here who would love to pray with you. And no matter what you do, would you continue worshiping with us? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? 
Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord you've attended any sort of conference or something in 2004, you probably have heard this song a million times. Um, I encourage you to, um, as Johnny preached today, um, enter this song um, in proclaiming truth together and seeking unity in it. Now there is truth that came for us humble to a sinner's cross you broke my shame and sinfulness you rose again victorious your faithfulness none can deny through the storm through the fire there is truth that sets me free it's Jesus Christ who lives in me you are stronger you are stronger sin is broken you have saved me sin is risen Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of all. No beginning and no end. There's no beginning and no end. You're my hope and my defense. You came to see and save the lost, and you paid it all upon the cross. You are stronger, 
it up A flash of light breaking through When all was lost, he crossed eternity already standing, please stand for your benediction. Benediction is a blessing, a word of truth spoken over you, so you leave today knowing the truth of who Jesus is. Margo and I are going to give it to you today. Missio, since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, the Spirit who moves us together in the way and life of faithfulness. Missio, since we live by the Spirit, go in step with the Spirit into the life and practice of faithfulness and be the church this week. May you be blessed.